I've always loved television. After school, I'd find myself in a foot race against my sisters. Whoever got there first had control of the one TV set in her house. My go-to, Hogan's Heroes and Get Smart. While my sisters preferred shows like Petticoat Junction and Green Acres. I mean, really? Sundays, a different challenge. I had to contend with my dad. He would light his pipe and fill the room like a San Francisco fog blanketing our black and white screen. After his pipe, he would settle in to watch Face the Nation or Meet the Press. However, before any of the pundits could delve into the issues of the day, my dad would drift off into a Sunday snore, adding yet another deterrent to watching that TV. But that snore also sounded off opportunity. Like a ninja, I would slide my way over, hid in the shadows of smoke, and hold the channel dial like a safecracker. I gently changed the channel to something more important than saving the nation, the Jetsons or Daniel Boone. But more often than not, my dad would pop up and declare he was watching that show. He was adamant, even with me pointing to the drool on his pillow as evidence, drool as St. Bernard would have difficulty replicating. I'd still lose the vote. Well, today's show is about someone who didn't fight to watch the TV. He basked in the admiration of viewers who watched what he created. As a kid, my guest spent what he describes as an inordinate amount of time watching primetime entertainment shows with his head resting on his mother's shoulder. But as he sat there watching those colored images flicker, he dreamed about creating content that other people would watch. Now, of course, in those dreams, he had no idea that he'd go on to refine and define how sports was presented to a TV audience worldwide or produce some of the most popular television shows of all time, including Hell's Kitchen, American Ninja Warrior, and the Titan Games. His name is Arthur Smith, and he's just written a brilliant book called Reach, Hard Lessons and Learned Truth from a Lifetime of Television. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Arthur Smith, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you, Tony. Great to be with you today. So my show is all about sort of running these gauntlets and overcoming circumstances. And I have to say that entertainment has got to be one of the toughest gauntlets because there's an infinite amount of content, but a finite amount of time. What made you choose this sector as the place to practice your craft? You know, it kind of found me and it kind of found me by accident. Um, you know, I was incredibly shy growing up. I loved television and television was like my friend. I spent, a, as you said, or as I said, an inordinate amount of time watching television. And the more I watched, the more fascinated I was with it. You know, consuming it when I was just a kid, I didn't realize that I would end up in the entertainment business. And that, that story is, you know, well documented in the book. But one thing led to another. I got out of my shyness and I and I learned to tap into what I call the power of reach. It happened subconsciously to me because, um, you know, ultimately, when I talk about the power of reach, I, I, I say that I believe that when you reach, you find out what you're capable of. I believe when you reach, you realize the difference between a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. But Arthur, just what just that switch, because I've always said to my kids, if you could find a way to turn that switch on, you'd go after it. But some people do it. And you talk about your shyness, but even early on, I mean, if there was a stage to be stood on, you started to go after that. It started in sports, quite frankly. And there was an incident that happened after a what I call a traumatic move from one suburb of Montreal to another suburb of Montreal. And as a shy kid, it was 
it was a nightmare for me. I would stare blankly out the windows. I had no friends. I didn't know how to make friends. You know, when I had friends in my old neighborhood, they it just kind of happened. And like I said, I was very shy. But the one thing I did love was hockey. A true Canadian boy. <laughs> I loved to play. And my parents signed me up for hockey. But I was a, even when I played, I was kind of in a supportive role. I was a defenseman. I was, I didn't know that I would ever think of being in the spotlight or anything else like that. And then this one incident changed my life. It was something where I had to reach, where I had no choice but to reach. I was a stay-at-home defenseman, and when I signed up for this team with a bunch of strangers, they put me on at center, and I said, I, I, I don't play center. I'm a defenseman, and I was very happy, and they go, well, we don't need any more defensemen. Um, and in my second game, I scored a goal with like a minute left in the game. It was the winning goal. And all of a sudden I had friends and all of a sudden I enjoyed the moment. And, and with that came confidence. And with that confidence came a whole new look at life. And, and I realized that I actually enjoyed being the guy with the puck or the guy with the ball or the guy in the moment. You know, momentum is a wonderful thing. It started with sports and realizing that I liked the spotlight. I started going out for plays and then I, you know, was successful at doing that. And that led to parts in movies and television shows and getting an agent and, and then dreaming of working in the entertainment business. And, and that was it. How I ended up as a producer is a, is a whole other story. But So before you get into that, I'm curious because you and I have a very parallel life. I, at age 10, my parents moved me from St. Rose Laval to Dorval. And I knew nobody. And I showed up with my face completely covered in scabs because I'd gone over my Mustang bike over the handlebars a week before I left. And so I looked like this this zombie. And and so it's curious, what suburb did you move from? I moved from Saint Laurent in Montreal. It was before uh instant message and Facebook, so six or seven miles could have been six thousand miles. I I you know, you lost, you lost track of all your friends. What I was interested about is just so you're starting to understand this concept of reach. You love the spotlight. Opportunity knocks again. You're offered one of the leads in Hogs Wild, but you find yourself in a very sticky session. But through it, you learn a valuable lesson. Prior to Hog Wild, um, in the summer before I was to attend Ryerson, I decided that I didn't want to go into theater arts, even though I thought acting was where my career was going to end up. And I decided I was going to go into production, TV and film, the RTA program at Ryerson. You know, I, I didn't want to go into theater arts because it was just too artsy. I used to say, I don't want to be a tree. <laughs> I just want to, I want to learn more about the business. And my parents appreciated that because they thought, you know, at least he's getting something more substantial than, than, an, than an acting background. And my parents always dreamed that after going to Ryerson, I was going to go to law school, which I never ended up doing. But so the summer before I was working for my dad, I went out to be an extra in a film. They were, you know, they were shooting films in Montreal at the time. I was standing in line. And I got pulled out of line and I read for a part. I ended up screen testing for a part. And I got the part in this movie called Pinball Summer. Check. I, I'm in a movie. Never auditioned for a movie. I'm in this movie. Everything's going great. But the other thing that turned out to be great was the casting director for Pinball Summer recommended me to another production that was happening in the month of August. And it was a movie called Hog Wild. And it was Tony Rosado, who was from Second City, Michael Bain, who was an actor, Patty Darbinville. You know, it was that time. It was that time when a lot of Americans were coming up to Canada to shoot movies uh, for tax breaks and the Canadian dollar, et cetera, et cetera. So in the movie, <laughs> I was actually cast unbelievably in a lead role. The only thing was it was a, it was a movie about a, a motorcycle gang that terrorizes a high school. And when I was asked if I could ride a motorcycle during my interview, of course, I said yes. But I had never been on a motorcycle before. 
I thought I was going to lose the part, but they said, hey, listen, we're going to send you to motorcycle school. So I went to motorcycle school for two days and learned on a very small motorcycle. I actually got pretty good. And I said, you know what? This is going to be easy. I can drive well enough for close-ups, which is all I needed to do. I obviously wasn't going to do stunts. And then they said, listen, you know, we want you to go an hour outside of uh, Montreal. There was a, the, the, the stunt coordinator was flying in from Hollywood. And you have to show him that you can handle the Harley 1200. But it's just a formality. And, and I'm sure you'll be fine. And I went out to this, this stunt ranch. And uh, within minutes, I, I crashed the bike. It was a disaster. And I like to say the stunt coordinator, you know, he came rushing and I, he wasn't worried about me. He was, he was, he was worried about the bike. The next day I got a phone call and they said, um, we got some bad news for you. Uh, the stunt director has threatened to quit the movie if you're in it. I was pretty devastated by that. And uh, they, they ended up offering me a small part. I actually turned that part down because I decided I, I'm going back to school because the movie would have extended into my first semester at, uh, at Ryerson. Great lesson in life in your book. You can reach as much as you want, but at the same time, you have to make room for fate. I thought that was absolutely brilliant because you can go all in, but you have to realize that sometimes circumstances are outside your control. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe everything's meant to be. I mean, I also believe that, you know, if you reach, you also have to have the game to back it up. And I clearly don't have the game, but I believe in fate. I believe everything is meant to be. You know, had I done that movie and had I I probably would have never gone back to, to school. I would have never gone back to university. At that time, I, I must admit that my head was kind of exploding because I thought, hey, this acting thing is pretty easy. I mean, I just got two parts and in two editions. And I figured, you know, this was my career. My parents were kept saying, you got to go to university. They're really pushing me. But so this was a good slap in the face and I needed it. And it and it completely changed the direction of my career where I, you know, even though I continue to act when I moved to Toronto and I worked, I, you know, I did a lot of um, guest spots on CBC sitcoms. I was in television commercials, etc. I really became fascinated with production. That was my true calling. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Arthur Smith, Montreal-born one of the most successful producers, and he's talking about his new book called Reach, Hard Lessons and Learned Truths from a Lifetime in Television. You know, you talk about fate, and I also think that within this book, it's a beautiful love letter to your mom and your dad who play such instrumental roles. But at this time in your life, you're heading off to Ryerson, and your dad might have thought about you becoming a lawyer, but he also sort of taps you on the shoulder and says, what about the family business? That was a fork in the road that would have changed everything as well. I mean, my dad, who passed away a few years ago, is the, um, he's the greatest man I will ever know. And, uh, you know, he's my role model. I will never be the man that he was. I try to. The greatest compliment I, that I could get, that I ever, that I ever get is when somebody says, you remind me of your father. He was the, you know, the epitome of a dutiful son. He was studying to be an accountant. He took a break uh, to serve as a sergeant in the Canadian Army uh, in World War II. And when he came back, his father had asked him to join a very small <laughs> fur business that my my grandfather had started with another partner. And my father, even though he had dreams of being an accountant and he was studying for it, there wasn't even a choice for him. He he just signed up for that and and he became my grandfather's partner. And together they built an unbelievable business. Really, my father really built the business. My father was an unbelievable salesman. Um, and, and very creative. Here he had this successful business going. You know, he was a manufacturer who sold to the finest department stores all over the world. He came to me and he said, listen, I want you to go to university and everything else like that. But I just want to let you know when you're done with university, um, I want you to join me in the business as my partner, my 50-50 partner. Day one, we're 50-50 partners. 
I was 18 or 19 years old, I just couldn't say yes. You know, my father was funny most of the time. And this was like a rare, serious talk I had with my dad. And there were tears in his eyes, which only made me a mess. Dad, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't do this. I've got to, I've got to play this out. I just feel like this is my, this is my thing. He said to me, listen, I understand, but if it ever doesn't work out, you know, you'll be my partner the day that you decide to, to stop. I will tell you, Tony, the thing about my dad and the thing that I try to really work at is, is gratitude. He was the most grateful man I know. My dad, Tony, and I were at the, we're at a deli in Montreal. Okay. And we'd order the exact same sandwich, the exact same sandwich. For some reason, his sandwich was so much better than mine. He just appreciated everything. He just, you know, everything that he did was the best or the most exciting or the most fun. Quick, just one other quick thing I'll tell you about my dad, just, just to give you an idea. You know, he was very proud of me, uh, but he was a little extra. Sometimes a little too much because he, he liked to talk about his son and his career and everything else with his friends and everything like that. And by the way, it wasn't just his friends. He would like talking about it with strangers, you know, whether it was a, a waiter or, or someone in a store. And he had this really interesting way of getting to the topic of what his son was doing. So what he used to do, Tony, he used to go up to somebody and say, do you watch television? Everybody says yes to do you watch television, right? So it was the perfect entree. And as soon as they said yes, he goes, did you watch the Olympics or did you watch Hell's Kitchen or, do, you know, whatever I was doing, whatever I'm doing at that time. And that was it. And then he would go off and then it would be the whole career. He was an actor and then he was at CBC and then he went to Dick Clark and the Fox Sports and, it, and, he, and he was off and running. But that, that was him. It was, quite, it was actually quite genius. Now, your mom had a signature line. Every time you reached for something, what did she say? She used to say, there's more for you, Arthur. And the first time she said it, I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not doing enough. And I think it was when I called, I just got a part in, in my second CBC sitcom. I got this part. I got another part. And, and she goes, that's nice. I'm happy for you. But you know, there's more for you. And I was like, I took it as, I took it in the wrong way. And she used to say it to me all the time until I realized what she was saying was in some ways to keep reaching and that she always saw me more in a leadership position um, before I did. I understand if I had your sisters on the show, they'd be rolling their eyes right now going, yes, and Arthur was her favorite. I know. Yes, I was her favorite. And 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 and, and it was, she didn't hide it. It wasn't weird though. I had this amazing relationship with her. It was funny when I, when I went to for my Ryerson interview and it was funny because she sat in the reception area and everyone thought she was like an older student. Like the people were talking to her like, because nobody else brought their mommy. And And by the way, this pattern continued when I um, got the call from Dick Clark to, to come to LA to meet with him. I, and my mother, I was living in Toronto at the time. My mother said, I'm flying to Toronto and I'm coming with you. I had, I was running a multi-million dollar organization. I had led three Olympic delegations. I had hundreds of people working for me, but my mommy insisted I come with, come with me. But you know what? Maybe I needed it. She used to say to me, she was, she was my good luck charm, but she was. She was. So let's let's compress a little bit of what we just talked about, because I really want to get into your body of work, which is just unbelievable. You kind of skipped over CBC, but you're the youngest person ever to run CBC Sports. Ben Johnson wins the gold medal, and then obviously a day later, it's stripped away from him. Your content is the most watched around the world, and you're competing against NBC. I mean, that's that's a David versus Goliath. 
When did it happen to you that you go, there's no stopping me. There's no, there's no rung that I'm not going to capable of reaching for. You know, I don't know if I ever believe in that, but I'm never going to stop trying. You know, the more, the more you try, the luckier you get. And I believe we make our good fortune. And I believe we have to reach for the Seoul Olympics, heading into the Seoul Olympics. They, t- they had told me I was going to be head of CBC Sports prior to going to Seoul. But they said, you have to do this one last assignment. And, and it was the biggest CBC assignment that I ever had. I'm, you know, the Seoul, the Summer Olympics in Korea with Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis. You know, Ben Johnson, the, the shy, stuttering Canadian versus the arrogant, overly confident Carl Lewis and, 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 you know, in the 100 meter race. And prior to the Olympics, NBC had won the rights from ABC, who had it for years. And NBC was going to do the Olympics in a big way. I mean, they spent way more money than ABC had ever spent. And, you know, when you compare what we had with CBC, what resources we had versus NBC, it was quite daunting. I mean, we had 135 people. Or that was our delegation. They had 1,500. Uh, their budget was n- not 10 times more. I think it was 20 times more. NBC is competition in Canada. CBC is not really competition in the United States. So we have a real competitor. And my goal was to have more Canadians watching, a lot more Canadians watching our coverage than NBC's coverage. And I actually was doing a press conference with, with a bunch of radio stations and newspapers prior to the Olympics. And I, I said something that wasn't very smart. You, you, kind of, you said the phrase, Tony, the CBC's David is going to beat NBC's Goliath. We will be there at the right time with the right events. We will have the right combination of live and tape. And we will set up the stories in such a way that people will get vested. It wasn't a really smart thing to say because I kind of put, you know, a target on our back. And, and the next day, the Ottawa Citizen had a headline, CBC's David versus NBC's Goliath. And it's funny, when I showed up in Seoul, um, I don't know if I talk about this in the book. When I, no, I don't. When I showed up in Seoul, in the control room, there was an, uh, an output of NBC's feed and it was labeled Goliath. It wasn't labeled NBC, it was Goliath. And there was one, obviously our output was David. And so it was a running thing. It was a joke, but it was serious to me. And so the night that Ben Johnson ran ran the race, I I had a plan. I wanted to make sure that that night we dominated. And I wanted to make sure that we were there as soon as Ben and Carl entered the stadium. So I decided to burn commercials early on so we wouldn't have any interruptions. And sure enough, NBC was in a commercial break and we came out of the break and we had you know, Carl and Ben entering the stadium, 70,000 people going crazy. And then we proceeded to do this, this pregame show and this story and both the two of them and, 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 and who are on this collision course and what people were calling the race of the century. And it was a great night. It was a great night. And by the way, we won a lot of money because I had a lot of bets with NBC, the NBC uh, sports department. I have to give all that money back, unfortunately. Like it was bedlam in the control. It was so loud. And we're, st- like, we're still producing a television show. Like, Everybody quiet, quiet. We, gotta- we were live on the air. Unfortunately, three days later, um, I, got- I was woken up in the middle of the night and I got the phone call that someone on the Canadian team and tested positive. And right away I said, ben, it's Ben. So I represented Ben Johnson as his Canadian agent during that time. Oh my I God. I had a company called Communique. So I, another parallel story where we tracked and I went from the top of the, I mean, we had wow. built him up. He was getting sponsorships. We had Toshiba. We had so many incredible people behind him. Loveliest guy you've ever met. And as you said, shy and stuttering, but, and then, yeah. You know, he was the one they took down, but I mean, certainly if we pull back the cloak and all the runners that back then, I would have to say he wasn't the only one that was, uh, that was juiced, but that's a different story. Three days later after the Ben Johnson incident, I got a phone call from the same source 
at the, at, that, get, that gave me this, uh, the, the uh, Ben Johnson tip saying that someone on the American team had tested positive. Never came up. I know. Story never came up. So I love the fact, speaking of that country, you decide now you want to go after the United States market. Another reach. And I love the story about Terry O'Neill, CBS Sports, walking in thinking you nailed it. And it turns out your resume is in a waste paper basket. So I had just produced the 84 Los Angeles Olympics and, and I finally settled into the sports department. I was finally accepted because I had started producing and directing when I was very young. And I had a really difficult time with my, um, my peers or, or, or the people I worked with, who the people who worked for me and the people who were my peers at CBC. Were they just jealous that you were so young and they felt they deserved it? Or yeah. You know, the fact that I became a producer when I was 22 years old was so ridiculous and so crazy and even a little crazy to me. I hadn't paid my dues. I, I, I finished Ryerson on Friday and started to work at the CBC on Monday. It was a very difficult time and I almost quit. The happiest times in my life, and I always tell this to my daughters, will be when you're working with people that you like and when people respect you. And the worst times will be when you, when they don't, when you don't feel respected. So around that time, right around that time, I started to think about the States. What's my next move? What's my next reach? And I locked in on CBS Sports and there was this guy there by the name of Ter- Terry O'Neill, who was relatively young. And I managed to get an appointment with him, um, and it was July 1st, 1985. It was, I remember it because it was Canada Day, and I figured I'm going to be off work. I'll fly into New York and get on the plane, um, the Air Canada plane, and the flight attendant was my boss's wife. Like, I should have got off the plane right away. Like, like this was doomed. It was my boss's wife out of all the flights on all the days. That, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, and I'm carrying this boxes of tapes. And she says to me, well, why are you going to New York? I said, I'm, 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 I'm friends. And she goes, oh, and you brought tapes. Yeah, I wanted to show them what I'm doing. And I said, oh, God, she's going to call my boss. And I'm, and he's going to be upset that I'm look, you know, trying to get out of CBC and I'm going to New York. Anyhow. So I was already feeling like crap, but I picked myself up. I went to CBS. I went to the BlackRock building. I'm going to meet with Terry O'Neill, the executive producer of CBS Sports. I walk in there. I tell him my story. I just produced the LA Olympics. I started at CBC when in 22. Tell him the whole thing and, you know, and, and how I want to work for him, et cetera, et cetera. And he says to me, he says, listen, you know, you, you've done very well for yourself and I really appreciate you coming. And, you know, we don't have anything at the moment, but we will consider you, uh, you know, if something comes up. I said, oh, okay. All right. So maybe this day wasn't a complete waste. And, and, you know, that's great. I go to leave and I, I get to the elevator and I realize I'm, I'm holding the bag with the box of tapes in it. I never gave him the tapes. So I go back to his office just to, just to drop the tapes because he's got to see my work. He's got to see what I'm doing. I go to put the uh, tapes on his desk and I'm, I'm looking for a pen to write a note. And then I see my resume in the garbage and I'm just mad, humiliated, feel like crap. Uh, but me being me, I decided to take the resume out of the garbage and write a little note saying, thank you, Terry, for the time. You know, when things like that happen, I believe in fate. Sometimes it's just not your time. I wasn't, clearly I wasn't ready. At least I wasn't ready to Terry for Terry. And sometimes it could take a year or two years. But later on, you realize that, 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 that it wasn't meant to be. And as it turned out... I came back to CBC. I ended up doing two more Olympic Games, uh, winning a few Gemini Awards, becoming head of the sports division when I was 28. 
And, and then I ended up moving to LA and Dick Clark got me my green card. So all those things may not have happened, wouldn't have happened, had I gone to work for CBS Sports. When we return, we'll find out what Simon Cowell and Donald Trump have in common and why Gordon Ramsay is an absolute joy to work with. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Arthur Smith. Chances are you've seen his work if you watch the Olympics, if you're a fan of Hell's Kitchen, and so many more shows. So I want to talk, because part of your role is obviously not only navigating the, the complexities of TV and content, but the personalities that go with it. You put a little mention in about a couple of people that most of my listeners would have heard of, Donald Trump and Simon Cowell. Donald Trump was, um, was doing The Apprentice for a number of years when, when we first got together. I had sold a show called Save Your Business to Turner Networks, to, to um, TNT. I was doing um, a show for Fox called Kitchen Nightmares, which we did 100 episodes with Gordon Ramsay. And it was very, a very successful show. And Turner, the, guy, the executive of Turner loved Kitchen Nightmares. And he said, why don't we try and do this for, uh, in, in, with small businesses? And, and he was the one who said, you know, it'd be great at this. Let's get Donald Trump. Okay. You know, sure. I mean, I said, he says, you get Donald Trump, you got a series pickup. I talked to my agent and I said, can we at least put this in front of Trump's agent? And then, and we did, and it was successful. And Donald Trump was in. What turned everything around was this one phone conversation I had with him. And I quickly learned <laughs> that he wasn't really committed to the show. He was really committed to more exposure of his brand. And about him. And so the conversation went something like this. It was like, first he said to me, how's the pictures business? And I, I didn't know if he was joking. So I said, we're doing talkies in color. And he laughed. And then he said, and here's the charming, here's the charming part. He says, that show you do, Hell's Kitchen, that does really well. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you for, for noticing. And he goes, then, but then the real Trump came out. He goes, no, well, not as well as my show. And then I said, well, you know, actually it, it's doing a little better right now. And he goes, no, 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 my people, heard this phrase before, my people tell me that my show is the number one show in the country. And I said, well, you know, I, I should have let it go. I should have let it go. I just should have said nothing, but I couldn't. And I said, um, well, actually, it's a show called American Idol. American Idol does gets 33 million viewers and the apprentice doesn't do that. And he goes, no, 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 my show is the number one. And I just said, you know, never mind. Let's, let's just talk about the show we're doing together. And he was very, very focused on his schedule more than anything. And, and I was like, I need you to be there at the beginning to find out what's wrong with the business. And I need you to be there at the end when we fix the business. But, you know, in the middle, you know, we can work with, you know, people in your organization to, to, and he was like, nah, I got, I got like a day to do this thing. And I was like, <laughs> this is people's real business. And he goes, I got a day. Then he jumped off the phone and then, and then that was it. And then he, then he pulled out. Thankfully he pulled out. Because I was freaking out that I was going to have to do a show with a guy who wasn't really committed to to what the concept was. So how's the Simon Cowell? How did uh, Simon compare? Because I understand he he might be, Carly Simon might have written a song about him. 
<laughs> I mean, Simon, okay, I will tell you, Simon Cutler's brilliant and extremely talented. And, and I like Simon. The one thing I didn't like about him is that when he became a producer and started running his production company, at least my experience with him at the time, which was a number of years ago, he didn't really understand, at least to me, that as a producer, as a, and by the way, this applies to a leader in any organization, your emotions affect everybody else. There are days when you're having a bad day, you get a flat tire on the way to work, and you don't feel like being in a good mood. Someone does something wonderful at your company, and you're still in this bad mood because you're thinking about your tire and your car and the hassle and everything else like that, but you have to be happy for them. You have to celebrate their moment because it's so important to them. In the same way, you could be having the greatest day in your life, and someone does something wrong at work, and you don't really feel like having confrontation. You don't feel like getting into a confrontation, and you have to. And Simon... <laughs> When we were doing the show, he didn't realize the impact sometimes of his notes because he would just ruin the mood that we were in. And there was, there's, to me, there's always a more respectful way of handling things. And, and believe me, I believe you can say anything to anyone as long as you say it in a sincere way without attacking them as a person, just sincere and being honest. And, and I believe in when you have to tell somebody, Bad news is you should always do it in person because we all know the problems of emails and texts and they don't have tone of voice and everything else like that. We were doing the show called Celebrity Duets and it was basically celebrities paired up with music legends. So the, the legends were Kenny Loggins and Smokey Robinson and Gladys Knight and, and Michael Bolton and Winona, you know, Patti LaBelle. And it was like my CD collection from the 80s. It was, it was everybody. And they were paired with like celebrities. It was like Alfonso Ribeiro from Fresh Prince. It was Xena, Lucy Lawless, Xena, Warrior Princess, and a number of athletes and everything else like that. So I had built this compelling opening to the show. And it talked about all the Grammy Awards that we're going to – all the Grammy Award winners we're going to see on the show. And the amount of talent and this interesting combination and everything else. And Simon came by the day before the day before the show to check everything out. He was, you know, going back and forth between the UK. He was, you know, had a lot of commitments in the UK. And one of my partners on the show said, "Let's show him the open." I go, "Don't show him the open. There's no. There, he's not. If he asks to see it, sure, of course not. But he's there's no reason to show it to him. Because it's so good. I go, "No, it's okay. Don't show it." To him. So we're doing the tour, and, and and Simon couldn't have been nicer. And then just before he was about to leave, my partner in the show said, uh, um, you, "You should see the open that Arthur did." Oh, no. Here we go. So I figured, you know what? The open's great. I'm proud of it. It'll stand on its own. It'll all be great. And we get into an edit bay and there's like Fox executives and, you know, we're all sitting around there and everyone has seen the open except for Simon. So everyone's like, you know, so excited for him to see it. And the open plays and everybody like goes, ooh, ah, and there's a little bit of a clap. And Simon goes, I, I don't like it. And nobody would challenge him. So I just said, well, you know, what don't you like? And he just said, I don't like the way it feels. Okay. That's like the worst possible note I could give because I don't even know what that means. Like I said, what is it? Like, what is it? Tell me. It's just he left and that was it. I spent so many times in meetings like that where somebody just feels they have to establish power by making a comment on something. I was in the advertising agency for 30 years and going, well, what don't you like? I, I just don't. I don't know. But yes, Gordon Ramsay. It seems like this is a, you know, if you could clone a celebrity to work with the way I was reading about it would be. Gordon Ramsay. Is that fair? He's amazing. He's an amazing talent. He's a hard worker. He's a great guy, which is, you know, people, you know, see one side of him in Hell's Kitchen, but he's, he's, he's also uh, charming and friendly and diplomatic and, and um, yeah, and he's, he's a hard worker. He's, he's just a little difficult in the kitchen, just a little difficult. You got anything to say to me, say it to my face. 
on my back. You got to shut the Yeah. He did challenge me when we first started working together because, you know, he didn't, he didn't know me. So, you know, he, he's a perfectionist in everything that he does. And I didn't really want to do Hell's Kitchen, you know, when it first started. I got a, I got a phone call, this executive at Fox, who we had done a lot of work with. We had a number of hits and he sent me a tape of a show called Hell's Kitchen. It wasn't our show. We ended up doing a much different show with this chef, Gordon Ramsay, who nobody knew in America. He had some Michelin stars and the, you know, and there, you know, listen, at the time there had never been a successful food show on network television. Talk about a reach. And so I said, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not really a foodie. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a broad based show. It's, it's not network television. Maybe it's food network. He goes, you haven't, you know, the executive said, you haven't watched the tape, watch the tape and, and then, and tell me what you think. I said, all right. I totally, you know, fell in love with what Gordon, who Gordon was and, and what a great personality was, but I didn't like the show, but I liked the title. And I went back to Fox and I said, I don't know what it is yet, but let me think about it. And, and, uh, but all, all I want to keep is Gordon in the title. And then told him the idea for Hell's Kitchen, which is we're going to build a restaurant. We're going to put, we're going to put two kitchens in there. We're going to have 80 cameras. And it was kind of, it was, I mean, talk about a reach. And thankfully, I had an unbelievable executive, this guy by the name of Mike Darnell, who said, I get it. And I said, it's kind of like sports, which I know a lot about. It's a competition. You know, we'll make it into a competition. And you'll get vested in character. You'll have a pregame before service. You'll have the game, which will be like a live dinner service. Then you'll have a postgame where there'll be real, you know, this all this follow from the drama. And Gordon will be the taskmaster. I said, it'll be great. Then the show sat on the shelf for six months because Fox was scared of it. We had a changing in the guard at Fox where it was one president to another and because no one had ever seen a show like this before. And reality television at that time in 2004, 2005 was starting to have a number of failures. And then finally they said, okay, we'll put it on the air. You're, you're going on Memorial Day. And I said, oh, great. Long weekend. Thank you. Thankfully, the show did incredibly well. And then, you know, we didn't lose a time period for, I don't know, five or six seasons. And, and the show was the number one show in America of, of all shows on television in season three. And, uh, and, and, you know, we, season 22 <laughs> goes to air in, uh, September and, uh, we'll be doing, we'll doing, we'll be doing more. Although it hasn't been announced yet, we, I'm sure we'll, we, we'll be doing more. What is the show that you knew would be a hit, but never made it to air and it still haunts you? I was on quite a roll with Fox. So I had this idea for a show where someone met their groom on their wedding day. And it was called I Married a Stranger. We did a pilot. Basically what happened, it was a woman who had been unlucky in love. She decided to um, let her mother, her sister, and her best friend choose the guy she was going to marry. It was set in a, uh, a villa where she lived in a little apartment in the villa. She was there when it was all going on. And we brought in like five amazing guys. Five guys who really wanted to get married, who had careers, who, who were really established guys. And they knew, <laughs> they knew if there was anybody that we were picking to be this person, they knew that person was pretty special. And she was. She was like Miss Kansas and she was intelligent and she was beautiful. She was smart. She was, she was everything. They, they interviewed the guys. The mother is, you know, fighting with the sister because they're debating. Every half day or so, they would have to send the guy home. And then she, the future bride, would meet the guy on the way out. And then she'd go back to her, her mother and her, why did you eliminate him? He was, he would seem like such a good guy. Better guys are coming. We, first of all, there's a great reveal because we find out who the groom is. The groom walks up and he's standing there. So we find out which guy, which is the guy they picked. And then she walks in and then he turns around and that moment when they see each other, oh, it was amazing. It was incredible. And they get married. I don't know if they're still together, but regardless, this is special. 
And Fox loved it. But around that time, sometimes your best ideas get killed for reasons that are out of your control. And, and for us, there had been a number of relationship shows that hadn't worked. And, uh, and Fox got very nervous and they just benched the show. And then what do we have now? We have Married at First Sight, which is a very successful franchise. We have Love is Blind, which is another very successful franchise. Timing is, as, as in every industry, is really important. So um, that one kind of bugs me. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Arthur Smith. He's a storyteller. He's a content creator. And he's just an absolutely wonderful human being. So your dad's up in heaven. He's pitching his son, the TV producer. What show do you want him to talk about that you are most proud of? There's two. I mean, you know, I have to say two because for my dad... There was one show for anybody who knows me and my dad that the, you know, the chapter I talk about this, this golf show called the great 18, uh, which is a show I created when I was at Dick Clark. It makes no sense. I was in, I was in between my CBC sports job and my Fox sports job job. And I was at Dick Clark. I I moved, moved to LA to work in entertainment, but I started to play golf and I was daydreaming about golf. And then this guy came in one day and with this notion and, and we created this show called the great 18. It was a tournament where we took four of the best players in the world and we played one hole at 18 of the greatest courses in America. It was John Daly, Tom Kite, Davis Love, and Fuzzy Zeller. At the time, they were all at the peak of their game. You know, we took one hole from 18 of these greatest courses. So it's the Island Green in Florida, the 18th hole at Pebble. It was a bear to put together. But the greatest joy was my dad, who was an avid golfer. I said to dad, you're, you're, you're coming with. He goes, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to get in the way. And I said, no, no, dad, you, I got a job for you. And he goes, what, what, what's the job? I said, you're going to be the head marshal. You will organize the volunteers in each location because every location was amazing. When we did this golf show, the grade 18. We'd have thousands of people show up to watch one hole of golf. It was incredible. And my dad got a ton of screen time because he's standing there with the quiet police signs. I have pictures all over my office, the office that I'm in, with my dad, you know, holding the quiet police signs, et cetera. And we had the best time. My dad was on entertainment tonight. I mean, that was crazy. I mean, my dad, <laughs> it was nuts. But but in the end, uh, I, I, like I said, there's so many wonderful stories that happened. And I remember walking, you know, when we finished at Pebble Beach and my dad puts his arm around me. He goes, this is this is unbelievable, Arthur. And and it was special. And my, when my father was in the hospital. I, I flew back to Montreal and he, he went into the hospital and it was clear that he wasn't coming out and he was he was going to pass away. And, and I said, well, I'm I forever long. He's alive. I'm going to be here. And I, I was there for like five weeks. And I go to see him in the hospital every day. And there were days that were tough. And there, you know, listen, my dad was still making jokes because that's my dad. But there were tough days. And during those tough days, I said, Dad, you remember the grade 18? He said, Oh yeah. I said, You remember when we were, you know, when we showed up at the first tee and and John Daly, a fuzzy seller says to John Daly, says, Do you ever play this hole before? And John Daly says, Never sober. Do you remember when the flight attendant came up to Fuzzy Zeller and said, Hey Fuzzy, are you married? And Fuzzy said, Only when I'm home. You know, what a, what a fantasy trip. What an amazing trip. And I'm so glad that I spent it with my dad. I heard this the other day. It's like, well, you know, when, when something wonderful happens in your life, immediately you want to share it with someone that is important to you in your life. And until you tell that person, it's like in pencil. But then when you, when you tell the, you know, your, your, the ones, people close to you, it becomes permanent. It's in pen. One of the things I say in the book, and I, and I believe this, it's much easier to reach when you're reaching from a strong foundation. And that foundation for me was my parents. 
I, I use the analogy of when you're standing on a table that's sturdy and you got to change a light bulb. It's much easier to change the light bulb than standing on a wobbly table. I was blessed with great parents. Not everybody is. That doesn't mean you can't build a foundation. That doesn't mean you can't have a foundation. You're not doomed. It's harder. It's harder when you're not reading. You know, it is possible you can reach from a wobbly foundation, but it's much easier to do it. And it's important to have those 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 people around you who support you, whether it's your friends or your family or your siblings. And speaking of reach and foundation, a nice segue, <laughs> uh, you put a foundation together. Yeah. And this is, to me, again, another love letter to your parents. It's almost the lessons they put into you that drove your success, that there's always more for you, Arthur, that you're, and your dad allowing you to say no to his business. You kind of all put into this foundation to get other people to have the same sense of values and opportunity you did. I didn't write this book for money. I wrote this book because I believed in the power of reach and I wanted to get the message out there. I've been lecturing for years at universities and different places and it always comes up. And, and you know, people have been saying, you've got to put this down in words and everything. And I really wanted to write a book. But, but at the same time, I said, this is a wonderful new chapter in my life where I want to spend more of my time giving back in some way. It's not that I haven't been philanthropic in the past or not done a lot of mentoring in the past. But I just want to shift the balance. I want to shift the balance a little more. So I established the Reach Foundation. So all of my proceeds from the book are going to this foundation, which gives money to a number of charities who lift people up in some way. That's the only quality that these charities have, that they lift people up in some way. And there's like, right now, there's seven or eight charities a part of the foundation. I took the advance <laughs> that I got from the book and I put it right into the foundation Foundation's already done a number of grants and, you know, we'll be, re you know, reviewing other possibilities in the future. And uh, so when you, if you buy the book, you know, it's not only, like, hopefully it's entertaining, hopefully it's inspiring, but hopefully you're doing something, you know, you know, uh, it, it, you know the money goes to charity, which is also kind of nice. Regardless of where other, whether the money goes, to me, it's a must read because it really is something that's missing in society, which is I've lost my sense of confidence to reach. Now, Arthur, I'm going to go back to the question. I asked you the two, the one your dad was pitching, you did the golf show. What's the other one that you go as your body of work? You're going every time that airs, it's just who I am and why I matter. Shows are like, like your babies. So I, I love them all. And every one of them stands for something important to me, but American Ninja Warrior <laughs> is the combination of my life. It's sports and it's entertainment, which I've gone back, back and forth a number of times. Um, but it also, the positive message of what the show is, is, is what, um, what I love most about it because it celebrates the attempt. It's not about completing the course. Although, I mean, it is to a certain degree, but there's a lot of success in just trying, which also goes back to the power of reach. The more you try, the luckier you get that you, when you reach, you find out what you're capable of, et cetera, et cetera. What I love about the show is that it was a complete underdog. There's no logical reason, Tony, for a obstacle course show to be on in primetime television. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And we never pitched it to NBC. How it ended up on NBC is a complete fluke. We were doing the show for G4, this little cable network, a guy's network, Comcast, who owns G4, Esquire, Oxygen, E, Bravo, buys NBC Universal. We go to NBC, me and the head of the network, and we say, please put this show on as an act of synergy to throw some spotlight on this network and on this show. Never ever thinking we'd end up on NBC. Just, just one airing. Just, just do it once. 
And it took a lot of convincing. And at first they didn't want it because they saw it as a guy show. And I said, no, it's not a guy show. It's not really sports. It's a family show. Eventually we convinced them to put it on. They, and they put it on the same night as Hell's Kitchen. Huh. Hell's Kitchen's on Fox and just on NBC. I got my shows competing against each other. As luck as, as good fortune would turn out, Hell's wins eight o'clock and nine o'clock. Ninja comes in second at nine o'clock and then wins the 10 o'clock time period. NBC calls me and they say, uh, Mr. Monday night, you just won all the time periods. Oh, great. We got better news for you. We want to do more of this ninja. We're going to take some of it and put it on NBC and leave half of it on G4. And then eventually NBC takes the whole thing. And then we get nominated for an Emmy Award. The other crazy thing is we started we started a sport. There's ninja gyms all over the country. And, and, and now they're even talking about ninja as a possible demonstration sport for the Olympics. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's the only sport where the athletes root for each other. It's the only sport where men and women compete on the same course. There's no handicaps for the women. And I love that. For me, any, any opportunity in my life that I have to tell stories, and maybe it's, maybe it's because I, you know, my Olympic background or just me as a person, maybe I'm just a big mushball, but I love telling stories of people and, and overcoming odds. And, and, uh, and Ninja is a great, opportunity to do that week after week. You know, Arthur, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, this wonderful book, Reach, and it is truly is a love letter to your your dad and your mom. And I think one of the most important lessons in life that your dad gave you was your ability when you said, I couldn't say yes, when he wanted you to come in and take over the family business, make you half partners how much that must have hurt him because you loved having you around. Mom loved having you around, but that gave you permission to keep reaching. And I think that's incredible. Second one is the word share. And you talked about first with your daughter, find yourself in environments where you like each other, you share, you collaborate, and just your love of sharing great experiences with your family and friends. And, and I, people won't see this because it's a podcast and radio show, but your eyes were magical when you're talking about those moments with your dad. They truly were something very special. I guess the third one is you're a storyteller. What I love about your storytelling is very often people find a genre. I'm a mystery writer. I'm, you know, I'm a sports producer, but you found a way to fuse all of this, the super tease with this hero's journey, combining sports and content and creativity. I can't wait to see what you reach for next. Cause I think you're, you know, yes, it's nice that you're doing on your foundation and balancing and putting more mentorship, but I think you've just begun. I mean, you just have some terrific energy and I, I'm just so happy you joined me in Chat of the Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. It's so, so nice of you to say, I really, I really appreciate that. You know, the people who are listening today, they have a choice whether they want to buy the book or not, or not, of course. But the one person who doesn't have a choice is the audio engineer who's booked for your session when you're doing the audio book. That guy has no choice. So I did the audio session, and it's four days. You go into a studio, and it's six or seven hours a day, and you, you knock off the book and everything like that. And so I had this guy. I felt like I was the session of the day. Like I like. He barely talked to me other than saying, you know, you're too close to the mic, stop popping your peas, etc. All the, all the things that an engineer would say. I would say, do you want to go for lunch? And he would go, no, no, I got my lunch. And every day I'd say, you know, let's go for lunch. And it's just me. And he goes, no, I'm okay. And I felt like this guy was kind of like not very personable. And I'm very, I like people. I like people. and I get energy from people. At the end of the four days, I go up to him 
And, and I said, listen, I just want to thank you, you know, for doing the session with me. And, you know, maybe we'll meet down the road. And he says, I have to tell you something. He goes, you changed my life. And I went, what are you talking about? He goes, I realized I wasn't reaching enough in my personal life, in my professional life. And he goes, for four days, I just, I just been hanging on every word of your story and everything else like that. I just want to thank you. And, and, I, and, and I, he says, can I give you a hug? All right. <laughs> and it was like, it was so great. And I go this, you know, like that, that one moment, this is like months before the book is out or anything else like that. And then I went and sat in my car. Wow. That was, that was great. I don't know if the book will have that effect on everybody, but the point is it was just, it was such a blessing just to have that connection with people. And I, I, that's the mission. I just, I just believe in the, to keep reaching and, and, and people should define reach in their own way. I'm, you know, the way I did it, it was my way. You know, there's always something you should just go for. Don't don't overanalyze and just go for it. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.